Exodus chapter 34. And the Lord said unto Moses, Cut out two tables of stone, hewn them out like the first, and I will write upon these tables the words that were in the first tables which you wrote. And be ready in the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me in the top of the mount. And no man shall come up with you, neither let any man be seen throughout all the mount, neither let the flocks nor herds feed before the mount. So Moses hewed out the two tables of stone like the first, and Moses rose up in the morning and went up unto Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand the two tables of stone. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by. Now, the Jehovah Witnesses think the name is Jehovah, but other evidence seems to point to Yahweh. Yahweh passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and in truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, upon the children's children, unto the third and to the fourth generation, verses 1 through 7. Now, there are people who try to say that there is a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament. And the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and judgment. But I love the God of the New Testament, who is forgiving and gracious and kind. They see actually two gods, the God of the Old and the God of the New. But in the Old Testament, you will find very much concerning the character of God as far as his graciousness, as far as his mercy. And here we find God declaring himself to Moses as merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping the mercy for thousands and forgiving the iniquities and transgressions. And so surely tremendous declarations of God's grace, God's mercy, God's forgiveness, God's goodness, God's truth. People who seem to think that God of the New Testament is all love and forgiveness and the abrogating of the capital punishment and all of this had better read the book of Revelation and they'll find out that he is also a God of judgment and a God of wrath that shall come and be visited. Grace and truth were demonstrated in Jesus Christ, but to those who reject that grace and truth, as Hebrews tells us, that wasn't the prophet Isaiah thundering out. That was the writer of the book of Hebrews declaring the judgment of God that shall come upon those who have rejected his grace and his mercy through Jesus Christ. So in the Old Testament, we have a God of grace and mercy and long-suffering and forgiveness revealed to us. In the New Testament, we have a God of judgment and wrath revealed to us. They are one in the same God. There isn't a God of the Old Testament and a different God of the New. In Hebrews 10, 27 through 29, there remains then a fearful looking for the fiery indignation of the wrath of God that will devour his adversaries. For they who despised Moses' law were put to death in the mouth of two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose you, 
he could be thought worthy, who has trodden under the foot the Son of God, and who has counted the blood of his covenant, wherewith he was sanctified, an unholy thing, and has done despite to the Spirit of grace. For it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And people only read it in what they want to read, but in reality, he is revealed in both testaments as gracious and loving and kind and merciful and forgiving and in both testaments as a God of judgment and a God of wrath and by no means clearing the guilty that is without there being repentance and God doesn't just say to a person well that's all right you're forgiven Jesus emphasized over and over unless you repent you will likewise perish People are troubled with the fact that it declares visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. That is declared a little bit more in the commandments that God gave, for it, there it adds to those that continue in them. Now, it's sad that the sins of the parents are visited upon the children. And we see this demonstrated all the time. It is a tragic indeed that really the real victims of divorce are the children. Children become the innocent victims because their parents aren't able to soften their hearts before God and soften their hearts before each other enough to make the marriage work. It's tragic, but there are so many pressures being placed upon the home today and divorce has become such an easy thing. There are all kinds of pressures that have been placed upon the home, and love has been made out to be something that it really isn't. And I get so tired of hearing them say, well, I just don't love them anymore. It's an unwillingness, a hardness of the heart, and an unwillingness to see that the marriage goes on. The children have to suffer because of the sins of their parents. There are even worse cases of children suffering for the sins of their parent, for there are parents who are mothers who are addicted to drugs. And when their child is born, it is born with an addiction to drugs. And many children go into withdrawals after birth because of the mother having been hooked on a particular drug. And there the sins of the parents being visited upon the children. Now, taking it from a sociological standpoint, and a psychological standpoint, there are people today who are having a hard time making it in life because their parents were so totally messed up. And so many young girls have extreme emotional difficulty because their stupid fathers were abusing them sexually. And surely the scripture describes the days in which we live when it refers to unnatural affections for any father to make any kind of sexual advance towards his daughter. Man, something's got to be sick, sick, sick with that person. Because what he is doing is psychologically destroying that daughter of his. And there are so many of the young girls who come in with tremendous problems of adjusting to life because of the stupidity of their dads. And I can't in my wildest imagination, I cannot imagine a father abusing his daughter or even being attracted to his own daughter.
That is so absolutely sick. I can't even think of it. Yet, what perhaps, well, what's not even worse, but fathers that abuse their own sons. It's just plain disgusting. You cannot do that to a child without marking the child, without damaging the child psychologically, putting psychic scars upon the child's mind that's going to be with him the rest of his life. Thank God for the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. It's the only thing that I know that can straighten up the mess that people's minds are in because of some of the stupid things that their parents did. And if it weren't for the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the world would be in a much greater mess than it is today. Because people are doing such absolutely foolish things and destroying their own children. Oh, how glorious it is that we can come to Jesus Christ and receive that beautiful work of his Holy Spirit. And he can absolutely cleanse and clear us. 1 Corinthians 5.13 tells us, If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature, and the old things are passed away, and everything becomes new. You can enter into a totally new, beautiful life in Christ, and only he can erase the psychic scars that so damaged some of you from your childhood and the things that you experienced in childhood. There are many young adults today that cannot even remember years of their childhood because their minds have blocked them out. And their relationship with the parents was just so off the wall that their minds just blocked out years of their childhood. And they can't even tell you about areas of their childhood because of the psychic wounds that are so great that are just, they've had to build a wall and they've just blocked it out. It's just hid and suppressed and lying dormant underneath there. So it is true, it is tragically true, that often the sins of the parents are visited upon the children, that they become the innocent victims of their parents' folly. And thank God there's always a way out. God has provided a way out through the blood of Jesus Christ. He can wash and he can cleanse us. But if it isn't there, then it'll go on and it passes from generation to generation. And you'll find out that in your psychology and in your sociological studies, that a person gets his role for parenthood from his parents. So if their dads were guilty of doing a stupid thing, they will usually follow that because that's the role model that they had. And unless Jesus Christ comes into their life, unless there comes that change to the power of the gospel, they will follow the role model. And it goes down from generation to generation to generation. And we see the degraded society around us today that is in such desperate need of the gospel of Jesus Christ to deliver us out of the cesspool and the and to just raise us up. Now Moses made haste and he bowed his head toward the earth and he worshiped. And God passed by and declared his name, declared his glory. 
Moses, man, he just got down on his face and began to worship God. And he said, if now I have found grace in your sight, oh Lord, let my Lord, I pray you, go among us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity, and pardon our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Verses 8 and 9. Now, that's asking God for an awful lot. Now, Lord, I've seen your glory. You've passed by me, declared your name. Now, Lord, go ahead and pass among the people, pardon their sin, and take us for your inheritance. Now, that's the part that I have. Here, God, you can have me for your inheritance. Take this stiff-necked people for your inheritance. Yet the Bible declares... Paul the Apostle prayed for the Ephesians that they might know what are the riches of his inheritance in the saints. What he is saying, if you only knew how much God valued you. Now, Moses is just saying that, Lord, take these people, put the value on them as your inheritance. If you only knew the high value God placed upon you, you'd be amazed. If you knew how highly God prized you he prized you so highly that he sent his son to die for your sins so that he could have you for his own and that's how high god prizes you he delivered up his own son for you because he prizes you that much i cannot understand it and don't ask me to explain it i just believe it so the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I make a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels, such as have never been done in all the earth, nor in any nation, and in all the people among whom you are, you'll see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome. Now the word terrible is an old English word, and it should be translated awesome. It's an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe that which I command you this day. Verses 10 and 11. Now God is saying, observe it, not just see it. And there's a difference between seeing and observing. And God isn't saying, see the things I command you. He's saying, observe. That is, see and live in harmony with it. Behold, I drive out before you the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and Jebusite. Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going. Lest it be a stare in the midst of you, but you shall destroy their altars, break their images, and cut down their groves, for you shall worship no other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Verses 11 through 14. Now, there are people here who have difficulty with God demanding the extermination of the people within the land. No covenant was to be made with them. No peace treaty. Go in and utterly wipe them out. And with this, people have a great difficulty with God because of his order to wipe them out, to exterminate them. And God is oftentimes faulted for this. As people are arguing about God, God is faulted for the order of the extermination and not making covenants with these people. And God ordered their idols to be cut, to be destroyed, their groves to be cut down. 
what were they doing in the groves? What were they doing in the high places? How were they worshiping their gods? Now, if you go into the Museum of Natural History in Jerusalem, and you go downstairs, in one of the areas you'll find diggings from the archaeologists of the pre-Israel culture from the Canaanite period. And in one of these cases, you will see many of the little gods that were representing Baal. And as you see these little gods that are representations, or were representations to the people of Baal, you'll see that Baal's arms are always folded, and the hands in an upright position, and they are made of iron, and they are made of stone, and they would place these in the fire and heat them until they became, well, the iron became red hot. And then they would take their babies and place them in the arms of Baal and allow them to be burned to death as they sacrificed unto this idol. Human sacrifice was commonly practiced as well as all kinds of licentious practices. Now, by the very nature of their worship, they would soon destroy themselves. They could not exist. No society can exist that is that corrupted. So they are going to destroy themselves. But if they are allowed to make a covenant and live among the people, they will infect God's people with this same deadly corruption. So God is ordering their extermination in order to keep his own people protected from the madness. And a great example of this is, well, if I were to hire you as a lunchtime monitor for a school, and as you were out there watching the beautiful little children and you were watching them playing out there in the yard and skipping and chasing around and all, and then there was to come upon the yard a dog foaming at the mouth, running around and snapping at the children, would you be justified in going over and grabbing that dog and killing it? You bet your life you would. And I love dogs. But the dog has rabies. Because it has rabies, it's going to die. The rabies are going to kill that dog. But if I don't kill it, that mad dog can actually kill a lot of those beautiful children. Those beautiful, innocent little children. And if I do nothing to stop it, if I do nothing to hinder it, that little dog could actually kill a lot of the children on the playground, infect them so that they would also die. So I would be thoroughly justified in killing that dog so that it would not infect the innocent children and destroy them. No one would really fault me for it because they know a rabid dog is going to die anyhow. Well, you've got the same thing, only it isn't a dog. It's people, and they've got a deadly infection in their whole religious system. And God ordering their extermination, they're going to die anyhow. They're going to destroy themselves. He's only protecting the innocent children that he's bringing in to inherit the land. His children. He's only watching over them. Thus God has given the order of extermination to protect his own innocent children. They're not to make any covenant 
because now verse 15 because if you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and they go a whoring after their gods and do sacrifice unto their gods and one calls you to eat of his sacrifice and you take of their daughters unto your sons and their daughters go a whoring after their gods and make your sons go a whoring after their gods you shall make no molten images verses 15 through 17 now there are all kinds of molten images in the land of Canaan. You shall make no molten images. The feast. Now, God lays out the various feasts that they were to have. The three feasts. Of unleavened bread shall you keep. And this is a feast of Passover. For seven days you are to eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you. Verse 19. All that opens the matrix is mine. So the firstborn of everything belongs to God, of your cattle, ox, sheep, all of the firstborn males. But the firstling of an ass you shall redeem with a lamb. And if you do not redeem him, then you shall break his neck. All of the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty. Verses 18 through 20. Now, your firstborn son, you had to redeem from God. He belonged to God automatically. You see, the firstborn son used to always be the priest of the house. He belonged to God. Now that God has a priesthood throughout the tribe of Levi. Now that God has a priesthood through the tribe of Levi, if you want to keep your firstborn son, then you had to redeem him from God. Six days shall you work, but the seventh day shall be a day of rest, even in the harvest time, and in the harvest time you shall observe the feast of weeks, that is, the first of the wheat harvest, verses 21 and 22. In June, 50 days after Passover, seven weeks after Passover, then the next day began seven weeks, would be 49 days. The next day, the 50th day, would begin the Passover, which was the first fruits of the winter wheat harvest, as they began to harvest there in Israel in the first part of June. It was sort of a Thanksgiving, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. So that really is equivalent to our Thanksgiving in the fall time of the year. Now three times in a year shall your men, children, appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel, verses 22 and 23. You know, that would be such a glorious thing if you had a religious nation, you know, a nation who was really committed unto God. It would be a glorious thing that three times a year, all the men in the nation would have to come and stand before God in this time of worship and so forth. That would be absolutely glorious. So three times a year, they were to appear before God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out the nations before you enlarge your borders. Neither shall any man desire your land when you shall go up to appear before the Lord your God. Three times in the year, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leaven. Now remember, leaven is a type of sin. Neither shall the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover be left until morning the first of the first fruits of the land, verses 24 through 26. Now notice the first of the first fruits. It's what God demands from you, not the leftovers, 
well, we'll see if we have enough left for ourselves, and if we have enough, we'll give it to God. No way. The first of the firstfruits of your land you shall bring unto the house of the Lord your God. You shall not see, you shall not seethe the kid in his mother's milk. Now, that was part of the practice for the land to increase fertility, they thought. The Lord said unto Moses, Write these words, for after the tenor of these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. And he was there with the Lord for forty days and forty nights. And he did not eat bread, nor did he drink water. And he wrote upon the tables the words of the Ten Commandments. Verses 26 through 28. And he say, well, pff, that's impossible. You can't go forty days and forty nights without food or water. That is very true. It is impossible if you're only dealing with natural things. But how big is your God? And God was able to sustain him without food, without water. Thus, though physically it's an impossibility, we are dealing with a God of miraculous power and a God who can set aside certain laws of nature. Now, I don't recommend that you try and go 40 days and 40 nights without food or water. Can't go more than nine days without water. We'll dehydrate and die. Yet Moses was able to, only by the sustaining hand and power of God. It's a miracle that he could do it. I believe that it happened because the Bible declares that it happened. I have no problem with a God who is able to work miracles. I would have problems with any God that couldn't work miracles. And he wrote upon the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. And it came to pass, when Moses came down from the Mount Sinai with the two tables of testimony in Moses' hand, when he came down from the mount, that Moses knew not that the skin of his face was shining while he talked with him. And when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face was shining, and they were afraid to come near him. And Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the con congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. And afterward, all the children of Israel came near, and he gave them in commandment all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And till Moses had done speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But when Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he took the veil off until he came out. And when he would come out and speak with the children of Israel, that which was commanded, the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, the skin of Moses' face, it was shining. And Moses put the veil on his face again until he went to speak with the Lord. Verses 29 through 35. So he would veil his face when he would go out and talk with the children of Israel because he would have this shining on his face. When he'd go before the Lord, he'd take the veil off. Now, twice in the New Testament, this veil is mentioned. They're in a couple different ways. Number one, why the veil over the face of Moses? Because it was hard to look at his shining face? No. In Corinthians, we are told that the reason for the veil over his face is so that they would not see the shining go away, fading. But the fact that the shine was fading away from his face was indicating the fact that the law that God had given was to fade away when God established the new covenant with man through Jesus Christ.
so that they would not see the fading away of the old covenant, his face was veiled. But Paul goes on to say, but even today their faces are still veiled when it comes to the word of God. They cannot see the truth of God in Jesus Christ. They still have that veil over their face as God seeks to speak to them today. And they cannot see that Jesus Christ is indeed the Messiah that God had promised to the nation Israel. So the veil still over their eyes, not being able to behold the truth that is Jesus Christ. Oh God, help us see you more clearly. Oh God, my Father, my Papa, you're so gracious to me as sinner. My life has been so changed. It has been so transformed that only a God of miracles could do this. Thank you, Jehovah. Thank you, Yahweh, for sending your son, Jesus, to be my salvation, my intercessor, my master, and my provider. It is in Jesus I find my identity. It is in Christ that I find my hope. And may our lives be continually blessed by your love, and may your will be carried out in our lives. In the name of the only begotten Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, we pray. And all God's children said, Amen. Amen.